Well, uh, good morning, uh, Grace Commons. As I get started today, I wonder how many of you are musicians as a way for us into our sermon today, our message today. It's a part of my life, actually, for whatever reason, I don't think I've talked a lot about with you in the past, but I played trumpet as a boy and as a young man, nine years of um, playing uh, trumpet, mostly in jazz bands, big bands, a little bit in sort of concert type bands as well. And uh, I can't even tell you how many scales uh, and arpeggios and exercises that I have um, done over those nine years and even actually since. For those of you who are musicians, you know that there is something about needing to have some of those things just reflexively part of how you play your instrument. It's both about your fingers and it's about what you hear from others. And it's, uh, in my case, about sort of your embouchure, those, those muscles around uh, your lips. And I still, to this day, even though I've not actually played trumpet with anyone or for anyone for a really long time, I will still play scales. It won't be uncommon for me uh, to find myself at a stoplight and just doing this uh, with my fingers. Um, sort of working through some scale in my mind and in my brain. It gets sort of in me, and it's now just part of like the way I live my life. I know it's the same thing for those who are dancers. There are certain forms and postures and moves and motions that just need to be part of like everyday work as a dancer. I know it's the same thing for those who've done self-defense or who have done boxing. There are certain things that you just need to do that just become part of your reflexive way of engaging in that activity. Same thing for almost every sport. Soccer, I know for sure is that way. Baseball, diving, swimming, all of these sports have things that need to be done uh, reflexively. And today we're going to talk about one of those things, those things that just need to be like we want to have, like become reflexive, a thing that automatically comes with us and from us as we seek to live prayer this year together. Uh, Richard Foster, who wrote this uh, really uh, globally well-known and famous book called Celebration of Discipline, also wrote a book just specifically about prayer. And the way he organized that book is in three motions. He said there are three motions for us to be engaged in in prayer. And the order he put them in is, first of all, there's inward prayer. There's the work of of healing and recalibrating our lives and letting God do a work within us. And then there's upward prayer, the prayer of, of worship, of simply sitting and soaking and basking in the presence of God and giving him all of us and receiving everything that he um, has for us. And then lastly, there's outward prayer, the prayer where we become aware of the things that are happening around us and family members and in the world and in politics and um, all those things. Then we sort of turn out and we ask God's kingdom to um, be known. We come to him with urgency and concern. So uh, we're going to change that order a little bit. We'll talk today about upward prayer and then inward prayer and then outward prayer. So we're going to talk about those things and how all three of them happen kind of together 
ideally, kind of all at the same time even, but we're going to break them up. And today we're especially going to talk about sort of this reflex, these scales, these motions, this impulse for us to remember to come back to God first and foremost in our prayers and worship. So why don't we pray, and uh, we're going to get right into it uh, with a short reading from Galatians. Well, Lord, there's this well-known Puritan prayer that the pastors would sometimes pray before they would get into the pulpit, saying, uh, Lord, I am desired, I am required to preach today, yet I come weak and needy to my task. And Lord, I certainly feel that today. I certainly feel the the magnitude of um, wanting to invite us all to know your word and to step into it and to trust it, to move toward it in love. And also I feel uh, my own inability and, and weakness and lack of creativity in doing so. So Lord, will you do what only you can do? Can you fill the gaps with your holy presence? Would you prepare our hearts and minds to yield to you? Would you shape us into the future in part by what we hear today? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, rock and redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to start today with uh, this reading from uh, the book of uh, Galatians. And I was surprised as I went through some old notes and realized in my eight years here, going into my ninth year, how seldom I actually have preached from the book of Galatians. I I think that's something we're going to have to fix uh, in the next year or so. Uh, And this comes about halfway through. This is Galatians chapter 4. And he wants to make sure that people have understood and really heard uh, the core hope of the gospel. So here it is, uh, Galatians 4, verses 6 through 7. And this is what he says. He says, because you, all of us, it's plural, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God made you also an heir. Galatians 4. Well, this, friends, this this is a gospel passage. This is one of those kinds of passages that you can sit with for, for quite a while and seek to understand the goodness and the hope of what it is that God has done, is doing, and will do through the work of Jesus Christ. It makes a declaration. It says, you are, you are now sons, children of God. You belong to God in a, in a fresh way. You're no longer slaves. You've, you've been set free, and, and now actually you are an heir. There's something waiting for you that belongs uniquely to you because you belong uniquely to God. Though maybe at one time you're spiritual orphans, now you get to call God Abba, which is this most intimate way of saying Father. I had a 
friend in seminary who would always pray, um, Papa, which always felt so informal to me. And then I realized, right, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. And that actually is the point of uh, this passage here. You have received the Spirit as a gift. God has looked upon you and has granted you the gift of his spirit to give you new life and to teach you the impulse to, to look to God as one who's, who's like intimately loving and caring for you. We do not have a God who stands far off. We do not have a God who stands over us in wrathful, deathly anger. But one who in his holiness has held that anger off, landed it on his son, that we might have a, a new kind of fresh intimacy with God. And friends, this, this is that upward motion of prayer, this upward motion of worship of God that needs to be learned and repeated like scales or like a kata in karate. In light of everything else, all the other things that are happening around us all the time, Abba, Father, let me sit with you in the middle of everything else and be reoriented to you in, in adoration, in praise, in making a heart connection. This passage declares that we have a new position and relationship with God. And then that's supposed to invite us to, to live a different kind of life of, of courage and of confidence, of real action out in the world that will run counter to what most others might think that we're supposed to be doing. We get to be sacrificial, kind, forgiving, filled with the Spirit. Because whatever's happening out there as we find ourselves oriented repetitively towards God as Abba, the rest just isn't dangerous anymore. It no longer has a hold on us. We are, we are no longer slaves to it. That, my friends, is the story and the hope of the gospel. But what's interesting about that is in the middle of that, the, um, the Bible also um, lays another story right next to it. And it's a story we all know well. And it's a story of how we all need to be reoriented to God. It's a story of how often and how quickly we find ourselves, our hearts, our minds and imaginations turned in a different direction. The reason why Paul says in this passage from Galatians that we are, we are no longer slaves is because we have been slaves. And we still sometimes treat ourselves like aliens and exiles distant from God. And the Bible lays down this story from the opening pages, what we see from the very beginning in the story of the Garden of Genesis, and then over and over in Scripture, and then over and over in my life, and then over and over in yours, is that our gaze doesn't call out, Abba, Father, we actually are not, most of us, habitually turning to God in worship, to bask in his presence, to give him all our all. 
But instead, actually what ends up happening over and over and over again is we find our lives kind of curving back in just towards ourselves, just towards whatever it is that we want in our hearts. And friends, our hearts are deceptive. We find our minds sort of pointing to something else. Our, our love doesn't, it's not just static. It has a direction. It, it pulls us to something. Our, our love pulls us towards things. As, as humans, we see something and we aim our love at it. Do you know what I'm talking about? That, that thing as a 12-year-old, you, you just had to have this toy and it meant so much to you and all your imagination and all of your allowance and all the way you spent, all of your energy was, was spent on getting this toy. Is your life really all that different now? That's the story of us needing to be reoriented. We focus our affection and we, we give our commitment. We give giant swaths of our time and energy to something that will not save and gives no, life, gives no life. Bible has a word for this kind of focus and attention, and it's, um, it's idolatry. That's the story that's set right next to this story and this hope of the gospel. Oftentimes we hear the word idolatry. I think sometimes, well, I'm not, I'm not an idolater. I don't keep little figurines in my pockets to like put out on windowsills and pray to them. There's no statues of gods in my backyard that I sort of bow down to or stare at and meditate over. And friends, that is a form of idolatry and it does still exist out in the world, but maybe not for most of us here in the United States. And thinking that that's the only form of idolatry, it kind of lets us off the hook. But idolatry, friends, is really so much more than figurines and little images of gods. In short, idolatry is simply when we love a substitute. When we take what's true about the gospel of God's deep and abiding love for us as we've seen through his son, Jesus Christ, as we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we love a substitute. Friends, that's idolatry. And this is the core concern that the Bible lays down right next to the offer of salvation. Because to love a substitute gets us nowhere. And can I just tell you, I know. I know because my love is often, well, it's misdirected. The things that I care about are disordered. The love that I have is confused. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Instead, friends, this, this impulse to, to be invited to, to, to come before God and declare him Abba, Father to give him our all and to spend time with him, to let him reorient our lives for us to discover that there's a way for us to live a life that's properly ordered. Let me see if I can show you uh, maybe a little bit more about what I, what I mean. James K.A. Smith wrote this book uh, titled, You Are What You Love. You might already hear it in the title. 
The thing that you imagine, think about, dream the most actually transforms you. And it can transform you into something disfigured or into something glorious. And he says this about Jesus and the Father, the Abba that sent him. He says in that book that the the most important question that Jesus asks us is, what do you want? That's the most important question. Multiple times in the Gospels, what we see Jesus asking is, what do you want? And oftentimes, because we're kind of a a head-thinking, logic-thinking, rational human beings, we, we think the most important question is, what do you believe or what do you think? But actually, what do you know? But really the question is, what do you want? How is it shaping you? And in prayer, we are called once again to recalibrate our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our longings toward the one who made us and saves us and fills us. So what what do you want? Do you know the answer? Let's try it. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm just going to give you 10 seconds. I want you to like just answer the question as heart honestly as you can. Are you ready? Close your eyes. What do you want? Well, friends, open your eyes. What did you come up with? What is the whisper of your heart? What do you want? Is it to be closer to God the Father, Abba, Papa? How many things jump in front of line? Bible lays that next to the story of the gospel and says, that might be idolatry. You might have a disordered love. You might have a, a misshapen heart for what matters most. Um, Winnie the Pooh, that great uh, theologian, he uh, once uh, said this uh, in, um, in a book by um, Milne. Sometimes... The smallest things take up the greatest room in your heart. Sometimes the smallest things take up the greatest room in your heart. Friends, is that you? Do you find that um, in the middle of being asked what you want, your heart is overtaken by things that are small, not expansive, not important not setting you on a trajectory of salvation. Friends, another way to say this is, as Smith says in his book, you are what you love. This is why this upward motion of worship and prayer is so important. It's, it's one of those reflexive things. It's like one of those things we should keep on doing at every time, any time we think about it, like playing scales at a stoplight with my fingers. It should be just this brief moment. Lord, I see all the activity and I worship you because of, of human effort and endeavor. 
Lord, I see those mountains to the west. And besides helping me always know which direction I'm facing, they are magnificent. And remind me that you pinch those together just with your fingers. Lord, I sit here with my cup of coffee and um, before the day has even started, and I want to simply just say to you, Abba, Father. You see, when we do that, it, it, it points us north. It reorients us and our concerns. It, it recalibrates the things that we love the most. There's a story that I read this week, and I, I couldn't go back and refine it, that talked about this, um, this ship that was um, traveling for hundreds and hundreds of, of miles, and, and they hadn't recalibrated um, their compass. It was about one degree off. And over the course of their eight or 900 miles that they were traveling, that tiny little one degree off meant that they had accidentally veered into another shipping lane. And as they veered into that other shipping lane, they, they collided with another ship at night that they couldn't see. And 40 sailors were lost. You see, friends, if we're not recalibrated, if we're not reflexively going back and finding the, the true north of worship, we can find ourselves in a collision. We can find ourselves in a place where we are, are dangerously off course and might not even know it. What do you want? Are you off course? Maybe just a little. This passage calls us to trust in the work of Jesus Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to call out to Abba, Father. When we don't do that, if we just sort of think about prayers as asking God to fix us and to fix the things uh, around us, well, then our prayers become um, what Clement of Alexandria called old shoe prayer. I just, I love this image. Old shoe prayer simply is this. Old shoe prayer is when we pray when everything is worn out but the tongue. Everything is worn out on the shoe except for the tongue. I have a couple pairs of shoes like that. I still wear them around the house. I don't want my prayer to be like that where all I do is sort of wag my tongue tirelessly and forever, but everything else about my prayer is worn out and maybe even meaningless. Friends, I don't, I, don't want my, I don't want my prayers to be worn out. I don't want to be off course. I don't want to be preoccupied with small things. So friends, as we um, advance into the next week and we receive what God has for us, can I invite you to do what I just started talking about a little while ago? Can I invite you to simply soak and bask in, and sit at the feet of Abba? That word is so important when we think about the one that we're coming before. This is a big God, but also a loving, gentle, and saving God. What if you just started to try to reflexively worship Pray in an upward manner at stoplights while the coffee is brewing in the morning. As you read the paper or newsfeed or whatever, 
Um, what if you praised him before you take that next meeting? What if we allowed ourselves to let ourselves be shaped by a love for God more than being shaped by anything else? Friends, let's worship in our prayer. Let's come before the Father, Abba, recognizing that he is the source of all goodness. Carl is going to lead us in just a moment, but let me close in prayer uh, right now. Uh, Lord, we do come before you recognizing all that is good and beautiful. And Lord, oftentimes, even when we pray with thanksgiving, that thanksgiving is oftentimes more about us than about you. And so, Lord, right now, we simply want to just praise you for the glory of the place where you have set us. We want to praise you for your inexhaustible creativity. We want to praise you for the gift of salvation. We want to adore you because of what we discover about your character that is holy and beautiful and kind and gentle. Lord, for those who are with us in worship, I pray for them especially that this habit of praise, this reflexive upward motion in prayer would become more and more their way of life. It's in the strong name of Christ, the risen Son, that we pray. Amen.